girl seated between two nuns on the hard wooden seat was very still and upright as the train rattled and bumped along the track. A tapestry travelling bag and an enormous cerise-coloured umbrella rested against the skirt of the smart dress she was wearing. Dark hair escaping from a patterned kerchief over her head seemed only to emphasise the pallor of her face, and so did the dark, fathomless eyes. Oblivious of the nuns and of the two girls, Leontine Moret and Marie Laurety, who made up the rest of the party, Bernadette Subaru recalled her departure from Lourdes earlier on this Wednesday morning of July the 4th, 1866. At the station seeing her off were her parents, her sister Toinette, two of her aunts, Basile and Bernard, and some of her close friends. Her mother had been beside herself with grief as she clung to her 22-year-old daughter. Gently releasing herself, Bernadette said, Mama, Mama, please don't distress yourself so much. After all, Nevers is not the other side of the world. You can always come and see me, you know. Oh, I don't know, Bernadette. I feel as though I'd never see you again. Francois Subaru, trying to calm his wife, said, Come now, Louise, you're being overdramatic. Now, Bernadette, it's time for you to go. Give your mother a kiss and don't keep the good sisters waiting any longer. Tears flowed and handkerchiefs were very much in evidence as the heavy steam train moved laboriously out of the station. Following the River Garve, it passed by a great mass of rock known as Massabiel. In an oval niche of a grotto stood a pure white statue of the Madonna. A pyramid of candles burned brightly nearby. The top of the rock had been levelled out and foundations laid. There was, however, one building in evidence, a small, newly built chapel. Looking across to the grotto, Bernadette's heart ached even more as she said her silent farewell to what she felt was her own private heaven. Now, escorted by Mother Alexandrine, the superior from the hospice at Lourdes, and Mother Ursula, a superior from another convent, she and the two other girls were on their way to the convent of Saint-Gildas to join the Sisters of Charity and Christian Instruction at Nevers. The journey was to be a long one, and it entailed changing trains and overnight stops along the route. The first of these was at Bordeaux, where they spent two days, and then to Perigueux. Though the train was slow with many stops and the heat and smells intense, there was no question of boredom. They prayed and discussed all they had seen during their travels, and on the final stage of their journey, the superiors told the three aspirants the history of the order which they were about to join. At the end of this story, Leontine said, I wonder which house I'll be sent to when I'm professed. Hmm, said Marie, we'll each be given a job to do. Wonder what mine will be. Bernadette said nothing. She had no need to wonder, for as far as she was concerned, she considered herself to be useless. At 10.30 that night, the train came to a halt at the platform of Nevers station, and the nuns wasted no time in shepherding their charges off to the waiting carriage and pair which transported them at great speed through the dark and deserted streets. As they approached the convent, the driver suddenly turned left. Bypassing the front gate, he went in through a side entrance and deposited his passengers in the courtyard. They gained admission to the building through a door at the top of some steps by the kitchen. Several nuns waited to greet them. After a light supper, the new arrivals were led through the sleeping convent to their dormitory. On the afternoon of the following day, all the novices and postulants of the community assembled in the great hall of the novitiate. Also present were the sisters of the two other houses in Nevers, 
which had been specially invited along. It had been decided that Bernadette Subaru should give an account of an experience she had had at Lourdes. The Mother General, Josephine Imbert, presided. Beside her sat Sister Marie-Thérèse Vazou, the mistress of the novices, and the two superiors from the Pyrenees, Mothers Alexandrine and Ursula, who were to act as counsellors. Clothed as she had arrived in a blue striped dress with a little scarf tied Pyrenees fashion over her head, Bernadette faced three hundred religious. Now, said Mother Imbert, tell us exactly what happened. While I was out in the woods one day, I saw a beautiful lady standing on a niche in an old cavern. She wore a white dress and a blue girdle around her waist, and she had a... Wait a minute, wait a minute, Mother Imbert interrupted. Now, speak more slowly and tell us what you were doing in the woods. Were you alone? No, madam, I was not by myself. My sister Toinette was with me, and so was a friend, Jeanne Abadie, and we went out to get some sticks for firewood. We were very poor, madame. My father was out of work. Yes, yes, said Mother Imber. What happened then? Well, we left the cachot, that's the old prison where we were living at the time, and going by way of the Savy Mill came to the Ribert Meadow. Toinette and Jeanne Abadie quickly crossed the little Savy stream and went past the old cavern of Massabielle and ran off together laughing. You see, I was so much slower than they because of my asthma. Anyway, I took off my sabots and began removing my stockings when suddenly I heard a murmur and then a sound of rushing wind. It was just like when a storm is blowing up. I looked all around, but everything was still. There wasn't a movement from the trees. I heard the sound again and looked towards the cave. Then I noticed that a wild rose, which was growing beneath the niche, was shaking violently, and the niche itself was ringed with light. Inside stood a young lady. She wore a long white dress with a blue sash around her waist, and over her hair there was a veil. On each foot there was a golden rose, and she held a white rosary. It had a gold chain between each bead. I couldn't believe my eyes, and so I rubbed them because I thought I was imagining it. But no, the lady was really there. I felt frightened and just knelt down and tried to make the sign of the cross, but I couldn't. My hands felt so heavy. Then the lady made the sign of the cross, and I was able to do so. After that, I took the rosary out of my pocket and began to say the prayers. Although she ran the beads through her fingers, the lady's lips didn't move except at the Gloria's. When I'd finished saying the rosary, the lady disappeared. Did the lady speak to you? asked Mother Imber. No, not this time. Not, in fact, until the third time I saw her. And what did she say? She asked me if I'd do her the favour of going to Massabiel every day for the next two weeks. And she also said, I wouldn't be happy in this world, but in the next. And then she told me that people were to do penance and to pray for sinners. She also had me do some penitential acts. When was this? asked Mother Imbert. It was the ninth time I'd seen her, on February the 25th. This time the meeting was different. She said to me, Go and drink at the spring and wash there. I was very puzzled about this command, but I thought maybe the lady who was speaking in our regional dialect might have confused spring with brook, and so I went towards the river. 
but she called me back. No, not to the garth, please. I turned back towards the niche, and the lady repeated what I was to do. Indicating with her finger, she added, and eat some of the plants you will find in the cave. So I went to the corner of the cave and found a damp patch and began digging with my hands. A little drop of muddy water appeared, just about enough to fill a wine glass. I looked at it, and the lady told me again to drink and wash. I scooped up some of the water with my hands, but it was so muddy that I threw away three lots before I was able to drink any. Then I attempted to wash my face, and afterwards I ate some of the grass. It seems to me, said Mother Alexandrine, that you did not act with much humility. That's right, interrupted Sister Vazou. You threw away three lots of water. But, Mother, the water was very dirty. Please continue. The next time the lady came, she said she wanted people to come in procession to the grotto, and that I was to tell the priests that she wanted a chapel built. After saying this, Bernadette's attitude changed. Her voice became tender, and her eyes became glazed as they recalled March the 25th, 1858, the Feast of the Annunciation. She was smiling and gazing at the crowds like a mother watching her children. I knelt and said the rosary, and when I'd finished, the lady came down from the niche and awaited me in the cavern. I stood up and went slowly towards her. Then I said, Madame, will you have the goodness to tell me your name? She smiled at me but didn't answer. Oh, please, will you tell me your name? Again she smiled and remained silent. So then I stretched out my hands towards her and begged, Please, please, madame, what is your name? The lady's smile faded, and a look of seriousness came over her face. She parted her hands, stretched them towards the ground, and then joined them again at breast level, and finally, raising her eyes to the sky, said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Bernadette stopped speaking and dropped her hands to her sides. While relating this scene, she had spontaneously mimed every gesture of the lady. Breaking the silence, Sister Vazou had one more question to ask. Having heard that Bernadette had been entrusted with some secrets, she wondered why no mention had been made of these. What about the secrets, then? Aren't you going to tell us anything at all about them? But Bernadette, as was her custom, eluded the question, and the meeting came to an end. That evening, Bernadette was handed over to Sister Dubot, who was to be her guardian angel in the next few weeks. She showed the new postulant around Saint-Gildas, taught her the ways of convent life, the exercises of the novitiate, and in particular, the importance of keeping the rule. Despite the companionship of Sister Dubot, Bernadette, during her first week, was deeply distressed. She missed Lourdes, she missed the grotto, she missed her family, 
And although she did her best to hide the fact that she was more often than not in tears, her red eyes betrayed her. But Bernadette overcame her grief, and in a letter to her parents she wrote, I am settled and very happy, and I beg you not to be anxious about me. Sunday, July the 29th, 1866, was the day of the clothing ceremony. Because Bernadette Subaru's postulancy had begun at Lourdes six months earlier, she was eligible. And thus, on this day, just three weeks after arriving at saint Gildas, the young woman replaced her blue striped dress for a white one and with the other postulants filed into chapel. There to greet them was Monsignor Focade, the Bishop of Nevers, and before a packed congregation of nuns and visitors, Bernadette Subaru received the novice's veil and her name in religion. From this day forward, she would be known as Sister Marie Bernard, the name recorded in the register at Lourdes 22 years earlier on the day of her baptism. On that particular day, January the 9th, 1844, just two days after her birth, there had been no bishop and no large congregation. Around the font in the bleak baptistry of St. Peter's, the parish church of Lourdes, huddled a handful of people as the first-born child of Francois and Louis Subaru received baptism. But to welcome the new member, the church bells rang out after the ceremony as the group made their way back to the house where the baby had been born. This was the Bowley Mill, one of the several that lined the banks of the swiftly flowing Lepaka River, north of the town. Though lured with its cluster of pale grey houses, narrow streets, uneven pavements and passages was hardly prepossessing, the magnificent outcrop of rock upon which was built the castle's stronghold of Mirambel and the grandeur of the surrounding snow-capped Pyrenean peaks made the place one of rare beauty. It was in the shadow of this dominant fortress that Bernadette grew up. Until the age of six, she was a strong, healthy child. But then she began to suffer from asthma. This caused her to have choking fits, which left her fighting for her breath. And so, when a cholera epidemic swept the town five years later, Bernadette was a ready victim. Although she made a remarkable recovery, her condition remained delicate. She was never fully able to take part in the games and activities with the other children, and even her growth was retarded. But she worked hard. Her parents, as mill owners, had started off their married life in reasonably prosperous circumstances, but due to mismanagement and generosity, they lost everything and ended up by moving into the only place made available to them, an old condemned building called the Casho, which at one time had been a prison. The front room of the ground floor was used as a workshop by a stonemason, while the Subaru family, which now numbered six, occupied the back room. It was small, dark and damp. In fact, nothing but a fetid hole, and the two barred windows were a grim reminder of its previous usage. Once the family had moved in their pitiful belongings, Bernadette took over running the home while her hard-pressed parents tried to get work. Francois could only get odd jobs, and this was doing work that other people would not. For Madame Subaru, it was not so difficult. 
There was always a place for a hard worker in the better-off houses doing the washing and general cleaning. Bernadette's sister, Toinette, went to school, while she herself could not, at least not on a regular basis, for when her father was fortunate enough to get a day's work, Bernadette looked after her two little brothers. She washed them, dressed them, and despite the exhaustion caused by her restricted breathing, played with them, more than happy to help them forget their empty stomachs. Bernadette quite frequently said to neighbours, School? No, books were not meant for me. I'm always ill. Besides, I'm needed at home. Anyway, when I do go to school, the sisters really don't know what to do with me. I can only write a few strokes on the slate, not even letters, and I don't know how to read. She certainly was needed at home, not only in the day either, for when her mother came in exhausted, the two of them set about mending the already worn-out clothing by the light of a stump of candle. Then, while Bernadette put her baby brothers to bed, Louise went to the woods to get sticks for their fire. On this particular day, it was February the 11th, 1858, the weather was bitterly cold and a low, damp mist hid the mountains. Francois Subaru was still in bed, the only place where a bit of warmth was to be found. We're out of wood, said Louise. I'm going to look for some before I go to work. Without waiting for an answer, she opened the heavy wooden door of the cachot, just as Jeanne Abadie was about to enter. Hello, Louise. Where are you off to? I'm going to get some sticks for our fire. Oh, you needn't bother. We'll go. She looked at Bernadette and Toinette. "'Yes,' said the two girls together. "'Please, Mama, let us go.' "'Well,' Louise looked doubtful. "'It's all right for you, Toinette, but Bernadette—' "'I'll be all right, Mama, please.' "'That's all very well, Bernadette, but you know how easily you catch cold.' "'Oh, Mama!' "'Well, all right, then. Uh, but put on your cape.' Happily, the three ran off and made for the woods. Once there, Toinette and Jeanne went on ahead and became so engrossed in their project that they forgot all about Bernadette. And when they returned a little later, they were amazed to see her kneeling motionless. Bernadette! Bernadette! Toinette called, and receiving no answer, she threw stones to attract her sister's attention. Bernadette did not respond at once, but after a while she stood up and joined the other two. On the way home, they bombarded her with questions until she eventually told them that she had seen a beautiful lady in the old cavern. Please don't tell anyone, she implored. But they were unable to keep this a secret, and as a result, Bernadette was forbidden to go to Massabiel again. Before long, though, she felt the urge to go back again, and once her parents gave their permission, she did so. After she had been to the grotto several more times, the local constabulary, noting the stir it was causing, felt obliged to intervene. And so began a whole series of interrogations, when in turn Monsieur Jacomet, the chief of police, Monsieur Vital Dutour, the imperial prosecutor, and Baron Masset, the prefect in charge of the High Pyrenees, did their best to confuse and even intimidate Bernadette in an effort to get her to admit she was lying. These men didn't ruffle Bernadette, but when the lady asked for a chapel to be built and people to come in procession, her heart sank, for this meant facing Abbe Perimal, the quick-tempered parish priest of Lourdes. Ha! Ah, so it's you that goes to the grotto, is it? 
said the abbe, after she'd introduced herself. You're the one who says she sees the Blessed Virgin. I've never said I see the Blessed Virgin. Then what exactly do you see, young madam? Is it something or someone? It's a lady, and she told me to give you a message. Well, what is it? The lady wants people to come in procession to the grotto. What? With the message imparted, Bernadette curtsied and hastened away. She had not gone very far before realising that she had not passed on all of the message. It was not until evening that she plucked up the courage to return to the presbytery. This time she found it more difficult because in the study with Abbe Perimal was one of his curates, Abbe Pamin. Monsieur le Curé, I forgot to tell you all of the message. The lady at the grotto told me to tell the priests to build a chapel at Massabiel. And what is the name of this lady? I don't know. She never told me. Have you asked? Yes, I have, but she doesn't answer. And she told you she wants a chapel at Massabiel? Yes, Monsieur le Curé. Have you gone mad in the head? A lady standing on a rock? A lady you don't know who wants a chapel at the grotto? And you accept these messages? And we are supposed to carry them out? I'm just telling you, monsieur. Ah! So you're a comedian as well? Oh, really, you are quite ridiculous. You command me? Do you have the money for this chapel? Eh? Eh? Bernadette emptied the contents of her pocket onto the desk. Just one rosary. Listen, I want proof of all this. You tell that lady of yours I want a sign. Uh, let me let me see now. Oh, yes. If she wants a chapel, tell her to make the wild rose bloom at the grotto. Bernadette smiled at the bewhiskered face. Yes, Monsieur le Curé, I'll tell her. Picking up her rosary from the desk, she curtsied and left the room. But before the door closed, she popped her head back in and said, Just a little one, Monsieur. What? What's that you're saying? Just a little chapel, Monsieur. Bernadette did not hear his reply. She had already disappeared. The lady had asked Bernadette to go to the grotto for two weeks. Those two weeks were now up, and the girl stopped going. But the people did not. Although the Subaru family were kept under close observation by the police, life took on some semblance of normality. But now the press began to go to town. In the beginning, only the local Lourdes paper had reported the goings-on at Massabiel, but gradually the news spread until on March the 9th, 1858, all the great Parisian dailies carried the story. As a result of this, Baron Massé, the prefect, and Monsieur Dutour, the imperial prosecutor, came under fire from the Minister of Public Worship, who demanded exact information about these so-called apparitions. In a letter he said, It is your duty to keep me informed of all religious occurrences. In reply to this, both men sent him reports, and at the same time stated that all necessary precautions had been taken to restore order. Monsieur de Tour and Massey also expressed the feeling that the incidents at Massabiel would die a natural death. But it was not enough to write reports. The harassed officials decided that something must be done, and so they sent for the girl who was causing all the trouble. And at the town hall, she was questioned first by de Tour and then by Monsieur Jacomet. When asked by one of them if she would go to Massabiel again, she replied, 
I don't know if I'll go to the grotto any more. The lady didn't tell me. But three weeks after the last apparition on March the 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, the lady called her again, and at last said who she was. As soon as the lady had disappeared, Bernadette stood up and ploughed through the crowds who hemmed her in on all sides. Murmuring to herself, and quite unmindful of everyone, Bernadette made a beeline for the town. Neither she nor her lips stopped until the presbytery was reached, and there she burst in on the astonished abbe. She said, I am the Immaculate Conception. What? Was it? Monsieur le Curé, the lady at Massabiel said, I am the Immaculate Conception. What are you talking about? No one can have a name like that. You've made it up. Do you know the meaning of those words? The girl shook her head. Then why say something you don't understand? But I'm only telling you what the lady told me, and I've said the words over and over again so that I'd be sure to get them right. The abbe's temper died at once, but not wishing to show his emotion, he said abruptly, All right, my child, go home now. I'll speak to you another time. Abbe Perimal had been taken aback by the news, but before he could decide what action to take, he was informed by Monsieur de Tour that the grotto was to be barricaded up. As the weeks went by, however, the townspeople repeatedly pulled down the wooden fences, only to see them put up again. And on July the 16th, 1858, the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, the fences were very firmly in place when Bernadette felt an irresistible desire to go and see the lady. Avoiding forbidden ground and accompanied by one of her aunts and some friends, she went to the Ribert Meadow on the other side of the Garve River. The sun had just set and a few groups of people knelt silently saying their prayers and no one noticed Bernadette in her dark-coloured hooded cape. She knelt and then asked someone to light the candle which she held, and all began to say the rosary. Bernadette looked towards the niche away in the distance, but only the upper part showed about the rough barricades. Her distressed gaze searched the area and came to a rest on the nearby bank of the Garve, where it joined the Savi stream. Her silent companion saw the kneeling girl's face turn pale, her skin go taut, while the brown eyes widened and became glazed. Later that night, she told her family, the lady was more dazzling and vivacious than ever before. The golden roses on her feet were brilliant. Her veil and hair flowed freely, and her smile was more loving than ever. We didn't speak. We just gazed at each other. I raised my hand to wave, and then there was nothing, only the darkness of night. In the weeks which followed, Massabiel was like a battlefield as gendarmes with swords drawn tried to control the ever-increasing numbers who defied the decree. Arrests were made, and fines imposed on those who took water from the spring, but it made no difference, and people still forced their way into the grotto. On October the 2nd, this state of affairs was at last resolved when the Minister of Public Worship informed the Bishop of Tarbes that he had spoken with the Emperor Napoleon III. My lord, he wrote, His Majesty wishes that free access be given to the grotto. He also informs us that people are at liberty to use the water from the spring. The battle for the grotto, in which the Subaru family had taken no part, was over. 
During this time, they had quietly gone about their business. At the Grau Mill, where they had moved from the Cachot, Bernadette had a room to herself, but even so, there was very little peace from the constant stream of visitors who plagued her with questions. Not only that, she was summoned almost daily to the presbytery so that different people could see and speak to her. These aggravations continued for many months until, at the instigation of Abbe Perimal, who had become her champion, Bernadette was accepted at the hospice with the Sisters of Nevers as a boarder and began her education in earnest. But the question now most commonly asked was, Bernadette, what do you intend doing with your life? Her reply never varied. Shrugging her shoulders, she said, I really don't know what I'll do. But surely you must have given some thought to the matter. After all, you're grown up now. Nuns too began to call and did their best to interest her in their respective communities. Why don't you become a Carmelite, asked one, or a Trappist, said another. But Bernadette kept her counsel and for the next two years concentrated on her education. On September the 25th, 1863, something unexpected happened. Bernadette, as she usually did during school holidays, was helping out in the convent kitchen. Suddenly the door burst open and one of the sisters, her face flushed with excitement, cried out, Quick, quickly, Bernadette, Monsignor the Bishop of Nevers is here. Go and ring the bell to announce his arrival. Rubbing her hands dry on the large apron she wore, Bernadette removed it and flung it onto a chair and ran to the front porch as fast as she was able and there started to pull the bell rope. What a noise, said the purple-clad bishop who was just mounting the stairs. Dong, 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 that'll do, young lady. Bernadette stopped, smiled, curtsied and hurried away. The bishop did not realise that this was the girl he had come to visit and so he said to Mother Alexandrine, the superior, You must show me Bernadette. I've come specially to see her, you know. But, of course, I don't want her to know that. Yes, yes, I quite understand, the nun replied. Perhaps you'd like to inspect some of the rooms at the convent first, and then I'll take you to where she is. And without waiting for an answer, she led the way. The last call was to the kitchen. There she is, whispered Mother Alexandrine. The tall, jovial man looked towards the chimney corner where the girl who had so recently been ringing the bell sat scraping a carrot. Without speaking to her, the bishop and the superior left the kitchen. Later, when lunch was over, he retired to the parlour and sent for Bernadette. Uh, come along in, my dear. Sit down. How are you? Are you well? Yes, my lord, I am quite well. I am very pleased to meet you. Now, you're not to be afraid because I've sent for you. After what you've seen, why be afraid of me? Bernadette relaxed, and the serious expression left her face. Now, Bernadette, I want you to tell me all about the apparitions. She did so, and the bishop listened attentively. When she'd finished, he said, And so, my child, what are you going to do? Nothing, my lord. What, nothing at all? But, my dear Bernadette, you simply must do something in this life. My lord, why is that? I'm quite at home here with the sisters. Oh, yes, that may well be so, but it's not as easy as that, you know. But why, my lord? Because you're not a sister, and it's absolutely essential for you to be one in order to join the community. Don't you see, as it is now, you're nothing, and at this rate, you will never last anywhere for long. 
You aren't a child any longer. Maybe you'd like to get settled in the world with a place of your own. She shook her head. In that case, why don't you become a sister? You're happy with them, aren't you? Oh, yes, my lord, I am. But it's out of the question for me to be a nun. I'm poor. I haven't got any money for the dowry. Oh, sometimes, my dear, these things can be arranged. Poor girls are sometimes accepted without a dowry. But young ladies you take without a dowry are clever and quite capable of making up to you for not having money. Me, my lord, I'm a nothing, and I'm good for nothing. Good for nothing? But I saw you in the kitchen a while ago helping sister cook, and I noticed there is something you're good at. Oh, don't worry, you'll be put to good use. Besides, in the novitiate, they will complete your education. Raising her head, Bernadette looked at the bishop thoughtfully. All right, now you think it over. Then speak to your confessor, if you wish. But above all else, ask the Blessed Virgin to obtain from her divine Son the light and grace you need. The light and grace had come to Bernadette. It was now three years later, and as the bishop put the novice's veil on her and gave the name she would be known by in religion, her thoughts went back to the day when she first met the Monsignor in the kitchen at the hospice at Lourdes. Then she wore an old plain dress and a scarf over her head. Now she wore a veil and the graceful habit of a novice. After this ceremony, Bernadette was assigned to help out in both the infirmary and in the sacristy. In her free time, she read. The books mostly made available to her were on the lives of the saints, and these did not particularly inspire her. But these stories are useless, she said. They're so unreal. Why don't they mention these people's bad points? It doesn't say a thing about their faults, their struggles, or what they did to make themselves better. Talking about faults made her become even more conscious of her own. I have a sharp tongue and a quick temper, that's for sure. And of course, I'm rather domineering. That's because I had control of my little brothers at home. The mistress of the novices added stubbornness to the list, which Bernadette readily admitted. I have been headstrong all my life, she said to Sister Vazou. 
Even at the grotto, I had to be told three times by Our Lady to drink the water. Well, said the woman, you've just got to overcome your faults now that you're a member of the community, and you'll have to work hard at it too. It seems to me that you are full of pride. Anyway, it is not as though you have nothing to help you. There's the peaceful convent life and all the prayer times and periods of silence. That should help you to control yourself. And then you've got me. Don't forget you belong to us now. We'll knock you into shape. Oh, Mother, I do hope you do it gently, said Bernadette. As the weeks passed by, it became increasingly more apparent to Bernadette that as well as the aid Sister Vazou had mentioned to put her on the road to sanctity, God was giving her another, that of suffering. On August the 15th, 1866, Bernadette was put to bed, completely fatigued. By the end of the month, she had become really ill as frequent choking fits threatened to suffocate her. By October, the patient's condition had worsened to such an extent that it was feared she would die. Bernadette realized this and expressed the desire to take her vows. A message to this effect was sent to the bishop while the novice received extreme unction from the convent chaplain. Both Mother Imbert and Sister Vazou attended the administration of the sacrament. Afterwards, they left the sick room and, closing the door quietly behind her, Mother Imbert said, The doctor said she will not last the night. Heaven only lent her to us, replied the mistress of the novices. Oh, she shook her head, her soul escapes me. Just then, the bishop came up the stairs and asked, How is she? We're going to lose her. Mother Imber opened the door, and the bishop went over to the bed. The girl had just suffered a severe hemorrhage. She was breathless, and already the signs of death were upon her. The doctor is very concerned about you, my child. It seems that you might well be near the end of your life. If that is so, then I am very grateful to God. I just want to die. I am told you wish to make your profession. Yes, I do, but I haven't the strength to say the words. Well, that's no problem. I shall pronounce them for you. All you have to do is say, Amen. The bishop recited the words, and when Bernadette said, Amen, Mother Imbert spread the veil over the girl's head while Sister Vazou placed a crucifix between her joined hands and the rule-book on the bed. Goodbye, my child, said Monsignor Focard. Please remember to pray for me when you get to heaven. Bernadette closed her eyes, and the bishop left the infirmary. Hardly had he done so when her breath, which had been irregular and rasping, suddenly became calm, and she opened her eyes. Taking hold of the patient's wrist, the nurse said, Her pulse is stronger. I shall not die tonight, said Bernadette. What? said Mother Imbert. You calmly tell us that you're not going to die? You knew you were not going to die, and yet you made us get his lordship out at this awkward hour. Now you listen to me. If you're not dead by the morning, I'll take your veil away. Is that clear? Bernadette smiled. As you please, my mother. Later, when she and the nurse were alone, Bernadette said, I'm feeling better. God didn't want me. I got as far as the gates, and he said, Go away.
you've come too early. From this day on, she steadily progressed in health, although her convalescence was slow, and confined as she was to four white walls, she naturally enough became depressed. But, as another patient observed, she fought her depression by helping others who were sick when she was permitted out of bed, and she read books and prayed a lot. Oh, how I loved to watch her praying. But most of all, I loved to watch when she received Holy Communion. It was then that I could see the great love she had for our Lord. She lowered her eyes, and her face was somehow transformed. Really, it was quite heavenly. Hardly had Bernadette recovered from her near-fatal relapse when she had another blow. News arrived at the convent of the death of her mother in Lourdes. Completely worn out from a hard life of work, poverty and childbearing, Louise had died at the age of 41. So great was the grief and tears of Sister Marie Bernard when this news was broken to her, said one of the nuns, that she fainted. She felt that no one could ever take her mother's place. When she came round, however, although she cried a lot, her strong will reasserted itself, and she asked questions about her mother's death. Then she said, Our Lady will take my mother's place. She wants me to love only her and to place all my confidence in her. When Bernadette left her bed in the infirmary and returned to the novitiate, Sister Marie-Thérèse Vazou, realizing that she could not shape this particular soul to her way, completely changed her attitude toward her. She felt that the young woman was full of pride, and so she immediately set about ridding her of it. To that end, Bernadette was singled out and humiliated to such an extent that one novice said to a companion, "'How lucky I am not to be Sister Marie Bernard!' In the great hall of the novitiate, Bernadette seemed to be forever on her knees kissing the ground in penance, so much so that one day she joked, I'm looking for the tile that I haven't kissed. Another reason which contributed to the harsh treatment of this young woman in her care was Sister Vazou's doubts about Lourdes. To a visiting bishop she said, Why did the Blessed Virgin choose to appear to such an uncouth and uneducated peasant rather than to a virtuous, well-educated woman. Mother Imbert, too, had the same reserve towards Bernadette, and her attitude was much the same as Sister Vazou, although inwardly she loved this young novice more than any other and could so easily have spoiled her. Sometimes, though, the Mother General's behaviour was extremely exaggerated, as on the day of profession, when Bernadette was to renew her deathbed vows. Having made their vows of poverty, chastity, obedience and charity, the novices went up one by one to the bishop and received their assignment. Then it was Bernadette's turn. As she knelt before the bishop, he turned towards the Mother General and said, And what about Sister Marie Bernard? Well, I don't know, Monsignor. She really isn't any good at anything. Sister Marie Bernard, is it true that you are good for nothing? Yes, my lord. It is quite true. But, my poor child, what are we going to do with you? I told you in Lourdes that I was good for nothing, my lord, and you said it didn't matter. Mother Imbert intervened. If you like, my lord, we could keep her here and give her a job in the infirmary, even if it's doing the cleaning. And anyway, as she's always ill, this job will suit her admirably. I would try my best, said Bernadette. The bishop gazed at the small figure at his feet 
And then he said, I assign you to the task of prayer. Bernadette could hardly hide her disappointment at seeing her friends leave the mother house to take up their various duties. But it was, in fact, to spare the sister from public curiosity that the protection of Saint-Gildas had been decided upon. Not many days after her profession, a nun who was visiting the convent asked Bernadette, Do you ever feel complacent at being singled out by Our Lady for special favours? The Blessed Virgin chose me because I was the most ignorant. If she could have found anyone more ignorant than me, then she would have chosen her. And then she went on, What do you do with a broom? You use it for sweeping, replied the nun. And after you've finished, you put it back in its place behind the door. That is quite so. And that is what happened to me. The Blessed Virgin used me and then put me back in my place. I'm glad of it, and that's where I stay. On another occasion, when speaking to a young novice, she said to her, Humility is like a good perfume. Those who wear it are never aware of it. The manner of her life vouched for the genuineness of Bernadette's humility. Her one desire was to stay hidden, and she went to all lengths to avoid those who sought her out. On those frequent occasions, though, when she was confined to bed, it was easier for people to see her, as she could not run away. But not all visitors were as welcome as a young child named Madeleine, who was allowed into the infirmary. Seeing the sister in bed, the little girl stopped in the doorway, joined her hands together in prayer, and stood motionless. Come over here, child. Madeleine did so, and after Bernadette had laid her hands on the little one's head, the child kissed her. Then she put her hands together again and asked, Is it right that you saw the Virgin Mary? Oh, yes. I saw her. I saw her. Was she very beautiful? Yes, she was. Oh, so beautiful. When you have seen her once, you just long to die so that you can see her again. Nevertheless, once she was up and about again, Bernadette resumed her tactics of avoiding people. More often than not, she pulled the veil as low as possible over her face, or she pulled the sides of it closely round her. When questioned by Sister Vazul, she replied, It is my little house in which I hide myself. And so good did she become at remaining hidden that it took a new postulant one month to identify her. Another one, after three days of looking at every person in the community, said to an older nun, It seems very strange, but I just cannot discover Bernadette Subaru. Which one is she? She's over there. The nun pointed towards a tiny figure. What, that? 
cried out the new postulant in obvious disappointment. Bernadette, who had overheard, came over smiling and taking the girl's hand said, Yes, mademoiselle, only that. Come, that will show you round the convent. The ready smile and infectious laughter endeared Bernadette to the community and the humiliation and trial she had to endure did nothing to squash her high spirits. One day, when she was sent to the kitchen for some hot water, she took it without asking Cook's permission. "'Sister Marie Bernard, just you put that water back where you got it from,' said the woman. "'Yes, sister,' said Bernadette, and she returned to the sink, where she endeavoured to put the water back up the tap. This action so completely disarmed the hitherto annoyed nun that both she and the culprit dissolved into laughter. It was this sense of humour, which was peculiar to her, that caused the young postulants and novices to seek her company, and the sick, too, looked forward to seeing her. Despite what had been said to her on the day of profession, Bernadette was, in fact, given a responsible position. She was officially made assistant to the nun in charge of the infirmary. She nursed us, recalled one of the patients, with infinite tenderness, and she was always cheerful in spite of her own bad health. Sometimes Sister Marie Bernard sang us little songs in patois and then laughed out loud when she saw we didn't understand the words. For me, no other visit compared to hers. When she came into the infirmary, she bowed to the statue of Our Lady and then she came and straightened the covers on my bed, took my hand and always said a little word of encouragement, like, we must suffer for the good of God, he suffered so much for us, or when we get to heaven, we'll be happy, but down here... At first, Bernadette did all the menial jobs, like cleaning the floor, emptying bedpans and changing the water in the flower vases, but eventually she graduated to nursing the sick. When Sister Foray, the elderly and ailing chief of the infirmary, was periodically herself confined to bed, Bernadette took over. Her humour, authority and counsel created a relaxed and happy atmosphere. Nevertheless, her gaiety did not conceal her deep sense of purpose and commitment, and a depth of soul which, obvious to all others, eluded Sister Vazou. The little sister was highly competent, just as she had been when running the family home in Lourdes. Monsieur Saint-Cyr, the doctor at Saint-Gildard, wrote of her, Sister Marie Bernard is small and frail in appearance, and she does not look her twenty-seven years. She has a calm and gentle disposition and nurses her patients with considerable intelligence, never omitting anything from the prescriptions which I order. Thus she exercises great authority, and as far as I am concerned, she enjoys my utter confidence. Although she was competent, she never compromised her duties, but carried them out with love and feeling. She was not averse to sitting up all night with a sick patient, and whatever the job, she never shirked it and coped admirably. One of the sisters was suffering from breast cancer. The disease had caused the open wound on the nun's chest to become so repulsive that those helping out in the infirmary could not bear to look at it, let alone dress it. A fine sister of charity you'll make, Bernadette scolded one novice. Just what will you do if you get a case like this when you're sent to a hospital to work? Are you going to turn your back on the patient? Always remember, when you're nursing someone, it's our Lord you are really nursing. When Sister Foray died, Bernadette officially succeeded her as head of the infirmary, 
but she had already been shouldering the work for almost six years, and now it began to take its toll. On January the 17th, 1873, she was put to bed in the infirmary. Here I am once more, she wrote to her sister Toinette. It started with a violent attack of asthma which lasted a long time, and then I had a hemorrhage which prevented me from making the slightest movement in case it brought it on again. You can well imagine how being fastened down like this does not suit my impetuous nature. While she was still poorly, she had an added burden. News of her father's death at Lourdes reached her. For a while, Bernadette was inconsolable, but gradually her good sense enabled her to overcome her grief. On Easter Sunday, Bernadette was allowed to leave the infirmary and attend Mass. Within a matter of days, she had a relapse and was put back to bed again. Now Dr. Saint-Cyr intervened, and he said to Mother General, I feel that working in the confined atmosphere of the infirmary is making Sister Marie Bernard's condition worse. Besides, the burden of work there is really too much for someone in her frail condition. And so Bernadette was transferred to the sacristy, where, as once before, she became assistant sacristan. I know, said the Mother General, how much it cost Sister Marie Bernard to leave the infirmary. She was very much loved, and her patients miss her a great deal. In the sacristy, the work was much less tiring and better suited to her health. And what did please Bernadette about the change of occupation was the close proximity of the chapel. And because she had more time on her hands, she was able to enjoy what her heart most craved, silence and solitude which had been denied her in the busy infirmary. Those hours of silence she also shared with Our Lady, sometimes before her altar, and sometimes before her statue which stood in the convent garden. It was quite obvious to all the special place Mary had in this nun's heart. It is as if the Lady of Massabiel had never left her, said one of her companions. When I asked her one day if the apparition had faded from her memory, she said, Forget her? No, never. And putting her right hand to her forehead, she said, It's there. And do you know, whenever she prays to the Blessed Virgin, it seems as if she still sees her. And if any of us ask her to obtain a favour, she always says, I'll go and ask Our Lady about it. And the sign of the cross she makes, it's so beautiful, it's like nothing I've ever seen. It's the same with the rosary. She says the Hail Mary slowly and with great feeling, and when she gets to pray for us sinners, she really emphasizes those words. Although Bernadette had more time at her disposal for prayer, she knew penance more than anything else would help to save sinners. In fact, so single-minded was she in this endeavor that when one of the sisters asked, Do you pray for the holy souls? She replied, Yes, I do, but at least they are sure of going to heaven. I prefer to pray for sinners. They might perish forever. One of her biggest sacrifices was that of Lourdes. In order to help save sinners, she decided never to go there again, even though she had many opportunities. I have made the sacrifice of Lourdes, she said. I shall see Our Lady in heaven, and that will be better. And what a sacrifice this was. 
It meant that never again would she see the magnificent Pyrenean countryside, the towering mountains, the sheep on the hillsides, and the swiftly flowing garve. It meant, too, not going to the grotto again, or visiting her parents' graves, and then there were her sister and brothers about whom she worried so much, and the redoubtable Abbe Perimal. His death on Our Lady's birthday, September the 8th, 1877, came as a great shock. Sister Marie Bernard was in chapel, said Mother General. When I broke the news to her, she let out such a cry. Oh, Monsieur le Curé, Monsieur le Curé, oh, Mother, I must go outside, that's where I'll find him. And she tottered out of the chapel to pray for him in the grounds. This man, of whom many years earlier she had been afraid, had become her dearest friend, and from the day she heard of his death, she felt that her own was not far away. To one of the novices she said, When you hear that I am dead, pray hard for me, otherwise I might frizzle in purgatory. Twenty years had passed since Bernadette had seen the Mother of God at Massabiel, and twelve years since she entered the Mother House at Nevers and she felt conscious of entering the final phase of her life on earth. She had been in bed for a year, and now had trouble in digesting and retaining food, and besides this, a tumour had developed on her knee and was causing considerable pain. On her better days, the nun was allowed up for a while, and when possible, on Sundays and feast days, carried into chapel for Mass. During the autumn of 1878, Bernadette prepared for her permanent vows. Each year she had renewed them, but now, publicly, she was to make them for life. The ceremony took place on September the 22nd, the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. It was around this time that Bernadette began to suffer mentally. As she considered her life, so she believed herself to be unworthy of so many privileges. "'It is painful not to be able to breathe,' she said, but to suffer from inner torment is dreadful. I'm afraid. I've been given so many graces and favours, and I've made so little use of them. Her agony went so deep that she even believed that her spiritual life was collapsing, and that as a nun she was a complete failure. So her torment continued. And then, on December the 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, she went to chapel for the last time. Three days later, she became permanently bedridden. Chronic asthma, consumption, severe hemorrhages, and the tumour on her knee all conspired to cause unrelieved distress. Oh, my poor sister, you are going through it, said one who was nursing her. Yes, Bernadette answered, but don't pay any attention to my contortions. I suffer, yes, but I'm glad to suffer. I'm prepared to put up with anything for Jesus, anything to help save sinners. The tumour on her leg grew enormous as her bones rotted, and the pain became so intense that eventually the diseased leg had to be rested on a chair outside the bed, though sometimes it took the nurse an hour to find a position which gave her less pain. The slightest movement caused great agony, and the little sister did her best to restrain her cries, especially throughout the night. Yet, despite her exhaustion, Bernadette Subaru still endeavoured to be of use. During Lent, 1879, 
She made an effort, as she had done in previous years, to paint pictures on Easter eggs for the Nevers orphans. On some eggs she painted hearts. Because, she said, people no longer have hearts. On others she drew crowns of thorns. They are to remind us that our Lord only gives his crown of thorns to his friends. Of her suffering she said, It's nothing compared with what our Lord went through, but if the little I can do helps save sinners, then I am happy. When the pains grew unbearable, or when she was made to swallow food or distasteful medicine, she said, This is for the big sinner. And who is the big sinner? Oh, the Blessed Virgin knows him well. On March the 20th, such was her agony that Dr. Saint-Cyr thought her end was near, and so it was suggested that she receive the sacrament of the sick. At first, the invalid was reluctant. No, no, I don't want extreme unction. Every time I've received it, I've been cured. Nevertheless, she was anointed, and afterwards, in a voice much stronger than usual, turned to the Mother General and said, I have been such a nuisance to you all. Ever since I've been here, I've caused you trouble. Please, Mother, please forgive me. And will you tell my companions that I am asking their forgiveness for the bad example that I have set them? Indeed, as Bernadette surmised, she did regain some strength, which didn't please her. She only wanted to die and go to heaven. Heaven, heaven, she murmured continually. They say that some saints did not go straight to heaven because they did not long for it enough. That won't be so in my case. Don't worry, said Abbe Fabre, the convent chaplain. You'll be up there enjoying it soon enough, and Our Lady gave you some idea of what it would be like. Oh, yes, you're right, and how that does me good. Well, then, be brave, sister. Remember Mary's promises. Heaven awaits you at the end of all this. Yes, I know, but the end is a long time coming. During Holy Week, April the 6th to the 13th, 1879, her agony intensified. The disease had run through her whole system. There was hardly any skin left on the lower parts of her body, and the sores which covered her opened up and merged, so that she felt she was burning up. Courage, sister, said the abbe. Let your sacrifice be made generously. Bernadette looked at the man. What sacrifice do you mean? Why, my good sister, I mean the sacrifice of your life. Ah, oh, that is no sacrifice. It is no sacrifice at all to leave a life in which it is so difficult not to offend the good God and where there are so many crosses. During this week, all the little holy pictures pinned to the white bedside curtains were, at her request, removed. I only need my crucifix now. I am like a grain of wheat which is being ground. I would never have believed it possible to suffer so much in order to die. Throughout her agony, Bernadette had never feared or doubted that she would go to heaven. But on Easter Monday night, a more severe form of mental torture began. Oh, I'm afraid, I'm so afraid, I have received so many graces, so many, and I'm worried that I have not used them as I should. All that night she was in a cold sweat, 
and her cries were terrifying. Periodically she called, Get out, Satan! Get out! At last the morning came, and she was easier. When Abbe Faber arrived, she said to him, The devil tried to frighten me in the night. He tried for a long time, and then went to throw himself on me, but I said the name Jesus, and quite suddenly he disappeared. The mental struggle and the anguish it caused was over, not so her physical pain. Wednesday, April the 16th, dawned, and still her emaciated, shrunken body writhed in pain. Just after eleven o'clock that morning, because she seemed to be suffocating, Bernadette's little body was gently lifted from the bed and placed in an armchair in front of the fire. One hour later, her condition worsened, and someone went to fetch Abbe Febre, while those nuns gathered in the infirmary knelt beside her. "'You are now on the cross, dear sister,' said one of them. Bernadette looked at the crucifix on the wall and said, "'Oh, my Jesus, how I love him!' "'I'll ask our Immaculate Mother to give you consolation,' said the nun. "'Oh, no, please, no consolations, but I need strength and patience. "'All suffering is good for heaven.' Bernadette's eyes turned towards the statue of Our Lady on the mantelpiece. I saw her. Oh, yes, I saw her. And how I longed to see her again. She was so lovely. Prayers for the dying began, and Bernadette followed these with great concentration, while her hands clasped her crucifix with tenderness and confidence. When the abbe arrived, her breathing was heavy and uneven, but she was fully conscious. After again giving her absolution, which she requested, he asked her to say the word, Jesus. The moment she had done so, Bernadette stared out into space as if she saw something. Her face, wrapped in radiant surprise, was transformed. Supporting herself with her hands, she leaned forward the better to see, and then came a great exclamation of wonder. Oh! Oh! She fell back into the chair and rested quietly for over an hour. Just the two infirmary sisters remained with her. Shortly before three o'clock, the assistant to the Mother General, on her way out of chapel, felt a sudden urge to hurry back to Bernadette. As she entered, the dying sister, still feeling she had failed in her duty during her years as a nun, stretched out her arms towards the superior. Please. Please forgive me. Pray for me. Oh, please pray for me. The three religious knelt closely around her and prayed quietly. Bernadette joined in in a low voice. At three o'clock precisely, a most dreadful expression of desolation and abandonment swept over the little sister's face, and extending her arms like a cross, she cried out, My God, my God, I thirst. A cup was put to her lips, but before touching the offered liquid, Bernadette found enough strength to make one last gesture, the large and beautiful sign of the cross, which, twenty-one years before, she had been taught to make. 
She drank a few drops of water, and her lips were wiped. Her head inclined to one side and rested on the arm of one of the nurses. Instinct told the three kneeling women that this time it really was the end, and together they began the Hail Mary. At the words, Holy Mary, Bernadette joined in. Mother of God, pray for me. Poor sinner. Poor, poor sinner. And she was gone, gone to the one she longed to be with, gone to the one to whom, twenty-one years before, she had waved a sad and poignant farewell while kneeling in the Ribere meadow which overlooked the barricaded cavern. On that day, the lady had looked more vivacious and more lovely than Bernadette had ever seen her. She was ringed in light, and everything about her shimmered in dazzling splendor, from her free-flowing veil and hair to the golden roses on her feet, and her smile was all-loving. So indelible was the memory of the beauty of Our Lady that Bernadette, many years later, in her sick bed at the convent of Saint-Gildas, could still say, when you have seen her once, you just long to die, so that you can see her again.